Section nine of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter nine. Bad news from the front. It might well be imagined that a man returning from such a morning's work as had been Blake's could be excused from duty the rest of the day. He and his little party had had a spirited running fight of several hours with an evasive and most exasperating trio of warriors, better mounted for swift work than were the troopers. He had managed eventually to bring down one of the Indians who lingered a little too long within short range of the carbines, but it was the pony, not the rider, that they killed. Meanwhile other Indians had appeared on distant divides, and one feathered brave had galloped down to meet his comrades and fire a few shots at the pursuing pale faces. But at no time, until near their supports and far from the fort, had the Sioux halted for a hand-to-hand -hand fight, and Blake's long experience on the frontier had stood him in good stead. He saw they were playing for one of two results, either to lure him and his fellows in the heat of pursuit far round to the northwest, where were the united hundreds of lame wolf and stabber stalking that bigger game, or else to tempt Blake himself so far ahead of his fellows as to enable them to suddenly whirl about, cut him off, and three on one, finish him then and there and speed away in frenzied delight, possessors of a long-coveted scalp. They well knew Blake, almost as well as they did Ray. Many a year he had fought them through the summer and fed them through the winter. They, their squaws and papooses, had fattened on his bounty when the snows were deep and deer were gone, and their abundant rations had been feasted or gambled away. Many of their number liked him well, but now they were at the war-game again, and business is business with the aborigines. Blake was a big chief, and he who could wear at his belt the scalp of so prominent a pale-faced leader would be envied among his people. Longlegs, as they called him, however, was no fool. Brave and zealous as he was, Blake was not rash. He well knew that unless he and his few men kept together, they would simply play into the hands of the Indians. It would have been easy for him, with his big racer, to outstrip his little party and close with the Sioux. Only one of the troopers had a horse that could keep pace with Pyramus, but nothing he could gain by such a proceeding would warrant the desperate risk." Matchless as we have reason to believe our men, we cannot so believe our mounts. Unmatched would better describe them. Meisner's horse might have run with the captains until crippled by the bullets of the Sioux, but Bent's and Flanagan's were heavy and slow, and so it resulted that the pursuit, though determined, was not so dangerous to the enemy but that they were able to keenly enjoy it until the swift coming of Kennedy and his captive comrade turned the odds against them, for then two of Blake's horses had given out through wounds and weakness, and they had the pursuers indeed in a hole." That relief came none too soon. Blake and his fellows had been brought to a stand, but now the Sioux sped away out of range. The crippled party limped slowly back to the shelter of Frayne, reaching the post long hours after their spirited start, only to find the women and children, at least, in an agony of dread and excitement, and even Dade and his devoted men looking grave and disturbed. Unless all indications failed, Ray and his people must have been having the fight of their lives. Two couriers had galloped back from Moccasin Ridge to say that Major Webb's scouts could faintly hear the sound of rapid firing far ahead, and that through the glass at least a dozen dead horses or ponies could be seen, scattered over the long slope to the Elk Tooth Range miles further on. Webb had pushed forward to raise support, and Blake, calling for fresh horses for himself and two of his men, bade the latter get food and field kits and be ready to follow him. Then he hastened to join his devoted young wife, waiting with Mrs. Ray upon the piazza. Dade, who had met him at the ford, had still much to tell and even more to hear, but at sight of those two pale, anxious faces, lifted his cap and called out cheerily, "'I hand him over to you, Mrs. Blake, and we'll see him later.' 
then turned and went to his own doorway and took esther's slender form in his strong arms and kissed the white brow and strove to think of something reassuring to say and never thought to ask blake what he had in that fine indian tobacco pouch swinging there at his belt for which neglect the tall captain was more than grateful it was a woman's letter as we know and that he argued should be dealt with only in a woman's way Sorely puzzled as Blake had been by the discovery, he had been able, on the long homeward march, walking until in sight of Frayne and safety, then galloping ahead on the corporal's horse, to think it out, as he said, in several ways. Miss Flower had frequently ridden up the valley and visited the Indian village across the Platte. Miss Flower might easily have dropped that note, and some squaw picking it up had surrendered it to the first red man who demanded it, such being the domestic discipline of the savage. The Indian kept it, as he would any other treasure-trove for which he had no use, in hopes of reward for its return, said Blake. It was queer, of course, that the Indian in whose pouch it was found should have been so fluent a speaker of English, yet many a Sioux knew enough of our tongue to swear volubly, and talk ten words of vengeance to come. There were several ways, as Blake reasoned, by which that letter might have got into the hands of the enemy. But at any rate, with everything said, it was a woman's letter. He had no right to read it. He would first confide in his wife, and if she said so, in Mrs. Ray. Then what they decided should decide him. But now came a new problem. Despite the long morning of peril and chase and excitement, there was still much more ahead. His men were in saddle, his troop was afield, the foe was in force on the road to the north, the battle, mayhap, was on at the very moment, and Frayne and home was no place for him when duty called at the distant front. Only there was Nan, silent, tremulous, to be sure, and with such a world of piteous dread and pleading in her beautiful eyes. It was hard to have to tell her he must go again and at once, hard to have to bid her help him in his hurried preparations when she longed to throw herself in his arms and be comforted. He tried to smile as he entered the gate, and thereby cracked the brittle, sun-dried court-plaster with which a sergeant had patched his cheek at the stables. The would-be-gladsome grin started the blood again, and it trickled down and splashed on his breast, where poor Nan longed to pillow her bonny head, and the sight of it, despite her years of frontier training, made her sick and faint. He caught her in his left arm, laughing gaily, and drew her to the other side. "'Got the mate to that scoop of Billy's,' he cried, holding forth his other hand to Mrs. Ray. "'Tisn't so deep, perhaps, but twill serve, twill do, and I'll crow over him to-night. Come in with us, Mrs. Ray, I've something to show you.' "'One minute,' said that wise young matron. "'Let me tell the children where to find me. "'Sandy and Billy are on post at the telescope. "'They wouldn't leave it even for luncheon.' "'With that she vanished, and husband and wife were alone. "'You must go, Gerald,' she sobbed. "'I know it, but isn't there some way? "'Won't Captain Dade send more men with you? "'If he did, Nan, they'd only hamper me with horses that drag behind. "'Be brave, little woman. "'Webb has swept the way clear by this time. "'Come, I need your help.' and the door closed on the soldier and his young wife, they never saw that Nanette Flower, in saddle, was riding swiftly up the row, and for the first time since her coming to Frayne, without an escort. Dade reappeared upon his front gallery in time to greet her, but Esther, after one quick glance, had darted again within. Dade saw unerringly that Miss Flower was in no placid frame of mind. Her cheeks were pale, her mouth had that livid look that robbed her face of all beauty, but her eyes were full and flashing with excitement. "'What news, Captain?' she hailed, and the joyous silvery ring had gone from her voice. "'They tell me Captain Blake is back. Two horses crippled, two men hit, including himself.' "'His own share is a scratch he wouldn't think of mentioning outside the family, Miss Flower,' answered Dade with grim civility. He had his reasons for disapproving of the young woman, yet they were not such as warranted him in showing her the least discourtesy. He walked to his gate and met her at the curb beyond, and stood stroking the arching neck of her spirited horse, Harney, again.' "'Did they—were there any Indians killed?' she asked, with anxiety scarcely veiled. "'Oh, they downed one of them,' answered the captain, eyeing her closely the while and speaking with much precision, a fellow who cursed them freely in fluent English. 
Yes, she was surely turning paler. A bold, bad customer from all accounts, Blake thought he must be of lame wolf's fellows, because he seemed to know Kennedy so well and to hate him. Kennedy has only just come down from Fort Beecher, where wolf's people have been at mischief. But what became of him? What did they do with him? interrupted the girl, her lips quivering in spite of herself. Oh, left him, I suppose, answered the veteran with deliberate design. What else could they do? There was no time for ceremony. His fellow savages, you know, can attend to that. For a moment she sat there rigid, her black eyes staring straight into the imperturbable face of the old soldier. No one had ever accused Dade of cruelty or unkindness to man or woman, especially to woman. Yet here he stood before this suffering girl, and with obvious intent pictured to her mind's eye a warrior stricken and left unburied or uncared for on the field. Whatever his reasons, he stabbed and meant to stab, and for just one moment she seemed almost to droop and reel in saddle. Then with splendid rally, straightened up again, her eyes flashing, her lip curling in scorn, and with one brief emphatic phrase ended the interview, and whirling Harney about, smote him sharply with her whip and darted away. True, said she, civilised warfare. If that girl isn't more than half savage, said Dade to himself, as Harney tore away out of the garrison on the road to the ford, I am more than half Sue. Oh, for news of Ray! Ray, indeed, it was now nearly four o'clock. Telegrams had been coming and going over the Laramie wire. The chief, as they called their general, with only one of his staff in attendance, had reached Cheyenne on time, and quitting the train, declining dinner at the hotel, and having but a word or two with the platform club, the little bevy of officers from Fort Russell, whose custom it was to see the westbound train through almost every day, had started straight away for Laramie behind the swiftest team owned by the quartermaster's department, while another, in relay, awaited him at the chugwater nearly fifty miles out. Driving steadily through the starlit night, he should reach the old frontier fort by dawn at the latest, and what news would Dade have to send him there? Not a word had he uttered to either the officers who respectfully greeted, or reporters who eagerly importuned him, as to the situation at Frayne. But men who had served with him in Arizona and on the Yellowstone many a year before knew well that grave tidings had reached him. Dade had, in fact, supplemented Webb's parting dispatch with another, saying that Blake's little party, returning, had just been sighted through the telescope nine miles out, with two men afoot. But not until the general reached Lodge Pole Creek did the message meet him, saying that Webb's advance guard could hear the distant attack on Ray. Not until he reached the Chugwater in the early night could he hope to hear the result. It was nightfall when the awful suspense of the garrison at Frayne was even measurably lifted. Blake, with three troopers at his back, had then been gone an hour, and was lost in the gloaming before Dr. Tracy's orderly, with a face that plainly told the nervous tension of his two hours' ride, left his reeking, heaving horse at the stables, and climbed the steep path to the flagstaff, the shortest way to the quarters of the commanding officer. Despite the gathering darkness, he had been seen by a dozen eager watchers, and was deluged with questions by trembling, tearful women, and by grave, anxious men. "'There's been a fight, that's all I know,' he said." I was with pack-mules and the ambulances, and didn't get to see it. All I saw was dead ponies way up beyond Ten Mile Ridge. Where's the major? I mean the captain? No, the orderly didn't know who was killed or wounded, or that anybody was killed and wounded. All he knew was that Dr. Tracy came galloping back and ordered the ambulances to scoot for the front, and him to spur every bit of the way back to Frayne with the note for Captain Dade. All this was told as he eagerly pushed his way along the boardwalk, soldiers' wives hanging on his words and almost on him, officers' wives and daughters calling from the galleries or running to the gates, and Dade heard the hubbub almost as quickly as did Esther, who hurried to the door. By the light of the hall lamp the commander read the pencilled superscription of the gummed envelope and the word immediate at the corner. The same light fell on a dozen anxious, pleading faces beyond the steps. His hand shook in spite of himself, and he knew he could not open and read it in their presence. 
"'One moment,' he said, his heart going out to them in sympathy as well as dread. "'You shall hear in one moment,' and turned aside into the little army parlour. But he could not turn from his wife and child. They followed and stood studying his pale face as he read the fateful words that told so little, yet so much. "'Reached Ray just in time. Sharp affair. Dr. Waller will have to come at once, as Tracy goes on with us to rescue stage people at Dry Fork. Better send infantry escort and all hospital attendants that can be possibly spared, also chaplain.' Sergeants Burroughs and Wing, Corporal Foote, and Troopers Denny, Flood, Kerrigan, and Prusa killed. Many wounded. Lieutenant Field seriously. Webb. End of chapter 9